There's no shame in resisting even the best of advice, but there is a way through that resistance. From SDPB Radio, today is Tuesday, October 10th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, financial therapy with Rick Kaler. Have you ever tried to help someone embrace change? We'll talk about what to do when good intentions encounter strong obstacles. We follow the thin blue map of veins under our skin to explore what happens when the valves weaken and fail. That's today's On Call with the Prairie Doc conversation. We'll take to the skies with Joe Foss for today's South Dakota History Recap. Plus, today's Teacher Talk explores the landscape of self-doubt for educators. Can learning be fun, or is the best education an epic struggle? That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Cooking fires are the leading cause of home fires and home fire injury. And the number one cause of cooking fires is simply someone walking away from cooking when they shouldn't. This year, the focus for Fire Prevention Week is cooking safety. Paul Merriman is the state fire marshal for South Dakota, and he's with us now on the phone. Paul, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about uh, the importance of this year's focus for Fire Prevention Week, cooking safety. Why does it matter? Sure, right. Uh, um, according to a report from the National Fire Protection Association, cooking remains the leading cause of home fires and home fire injuries in the U.S. as well as in South Dakota, with almost half, about 44% of reported home fires starting in the kitchen. So this year's focus is is really how can we prevent some of those fires and in a lot of cases just taking some very basic precautions can help quite a quite a lot. So tell us a little bit about how to prepare for cooking. What are some of those precautions that you should have kitchen ready? Well exactly so again a cooking fire can grow very quickly each year many homes are damaged people injured by fires that really could have easily been prevented. So it's like, as you said, it's important that people stay in the kitchen when they're cooking. Uh, Use a timer as a reminder when the food is done. Avoid distractions such as electronics and televisions whenever possible. Keep anything that's combustible or can catch fire away from the stovetop. And keeping a fire extinguisher in the kitchen handy and knowing how to use it is very important as well. Um, And if you do end up having an issue, if you have any doubt about fighting, even a small fire, get out of the home and dial 911. All right, let's talk a little bit about um, just stovetops. You know, you're cooking on the stove and the pan lights on fire. Put a lid on it, throw water on it, use your fire extinguisher. How do you address that emergency? Right, exactly. If you're able to cover it safely, you know, you can certainly do so. But it really comes down to your comfort level in in what you're dealing with at the time and it's always safer to dial 911 first and then attempt to fight the fire if you're comfortable if you're not comfortable and get out of the house as soon as you can safely and let professionals take care of it all right so don't you're not dumping water on it though i think that's an important thing to say that's that's not going to work for you no, especially not on a grease fire and not on a, not on an electric stove. Turn off the burner, 
Yes, if you can turn off if the you burner. can, all right. If the fire is inside the oven, turn off the oven, but don't open the door, right? Exactly. You don't want to give that any oxygen in which to grow or possibly be injured in the process of, of doing so. So we've heard a lot about gas ovens lately, and last year, of course, uh, not related to gas ovens, but I don't think any of us have forgotten about some home explosions. So let's talk a little bit about gas and um, prevention going into the winter for just keeping your home safe for some of those catastrophic events. Right, and as you allude to, you know, now in the fall, um, fall heading into winter, we see a higher number of home fires during those months, obviously, than we do any other time of the year. And things such as cooking, as we talked about, home heating, um, winter storms, which we have in the forecast later in the week, um, all come into play during this time of year. But focusing on home heating, home heating systems have greatly improved over the years in both efficiency and safety, but they still remain a leading cause of home fires. Uh, with the highest occurrence being the months of December, January, and February. Uh, space heaters were the type of equipment most often responsible for home heating equipment fires. Uh, but the vast majority of heating-related fires can be prevented by making sure that equipment's in good working order and monitored. Heating equipment and chimneys, for example, should be cleaned and inspected every year by a qualified professional. Um, be mindful and keep anything that can burn at least three feet away from all heating equipment, which would include furnaces, fireplaces, wood stoves, mm. and space heaters. Always use the right type of fuel as specified by the manufacturer for fuel burning space heaters. Um, create a three foot kid-free zone around open fires and space heaters. Always make sure any space heaters that are in use are in good working order and used in accordance with the manufacturer's uh, directions, instructions. And always make sure you turn off any portable heaters when leaving the room or going to bed. Yeah. All right, uh, before we let you go, Fire Prevention Week is also a time to honor firefighters and especially the volunteer firefighters uh, that do such difficult work across the state of South Dakota. Anything that you want to say about these people who are, you know, serving their communities in some really difficult ways? We're so thankful for our volunteers, and I would encourage everyone to to thank the volunteer firefighters in their communities for, for the time that they put in and for what they do to help us keep all of us safe here yeah. in South Dakota. The best way to thank them is to do all these things. Don't tune it out. Uh, check your smoke detectors. Change the batteries. Test them every month. Uh, make sure that you're preparing uh, attentive cooking and not walking away from the stove. That's one of the best ways to say thank you to those volunteer Absolutely. firefighters. Paul Merriman, State Fire Marshal for South Dakota. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, what is going on under your skin? We don't mean things that might be irritating you or getting under your skin. We're talking about things that are always there. 
your veins. Veins are the interstate of the body, bringing blood where blood needs to go. And varicose veins are like little traffic jams. Dr. Jill Cruz is a family medicine practitioner with Brookings Health System. She's our on-call with the Prairie Doc team member today to talk about arteries, veins, and capillaries. Dr. Cruz with us now on the phone. Thanks for being here. Hi, always nice to be on the show. So the upcoming episode of On Call with the Prairie Doc looks at all these ways that things get moved around in our body, but your Prairie Doc perspective for the week focuses on varicose veins. What's going on in in varicose veins? What do they look like? How do you know that's something that's a, a problem for you? Yep. So a varicose vein just means it's a vein that ended up getting swollen and enlarged and stretched out. And that can happen for a variety of reasons. But basically, there's these valves in the veins that help the blood keep moving forward. And in between your heartbeat, there's a a pause while the heart's filling up for the next beat. And during that pause, these veins will have valves that close to prevent the blood from flowing back down against gravity. And if there's something that happens over time where those valves get damaged, then they can't seal tightly, and then that blood is going to backflow, and then those veins are going to stretch and engorge, and that's when you end up getting these varicose veins where they're very um, large, and they'll stick out from the skin, and they'll kind of look like uh, little tributaries and rivers. They'll, they'll be all sort of serpentine and can stick out from the skin, and that can cause a fair amount of trouble with that, causing you know lots of aching, pain, heaviness in the legs, swelling in the legs, and just kind of these unsightly bluish, reddish, purplish uh, veins sticking out from the skin. And what about the swelling that happens around it in the places? Like how how far can that edema or that swelling kind of carry on? Well, that will kind of swell. That can cause swelling throughout, you know, the entire leg. It's mainly these veins are the superficial ones, the ones that you can see Mm -hmm. right under the skin there. But it can cause swelling around basically the whole circumference of the leg there and feet and ankle. So wherever that gravity is going to pull that extra fluid down, that's where you're going to get your swelling. So generally from the knees down is where they tend to be the worst. When is it cosmetic and when is it a problem that needs to be addressed medically? So when it's cosmetic, usually those are the little spider veins where they're just the thin little lines. There's nothing that's really sticking out from the skin. Um, Really don't have too much for symptoms with them they just look bad and you notice them when they become more of a problem you want to do something about them is when they start causing that increased swelling it's hard to get on shoes it's hard to you know um, wearing any slacks or leggings that are tight would be you know painful or you feel this achiness heaviness Um, when basically you're starting to have symptoms cramping you know kind of an itchy tingly feeling under the legs um all of that, when you start noticing those abnormal sensations, that's definitely when you'd want to get them looked at and treated. All right. So what kinds of treatment options are there? There are several different treatment options. It uh, kind of depends on where they're at, how big they are, and what's affected. You know, people talk about, you know, the most drastic would be the vein stripping, where they actually take the entire vein out. Um, that's not done nearly as much now because we have better and easier things to do. Uh, there is what's called sclerotherapy where they can inject kind of a, a high salt water solution into the vein and that causes it to collapse on itself and go away. 
And then there's also lasers uh, that they can use, again, to kind of vaporize and cause the vein to collapse in on itself and tighten up. And then these kind of collateral, since these are the superficial veins um, on the skin, you're not blocking off the blood return, and it's those more deeper internal veins that will kind of pick up the slack of returning that blood back to the heart. So will they come back then, or will that be, that's it, because those veins have been collapsed? Um, those won't come back, but there is a chance, you know, if you don't treat the initial cause that, you know, the collateral veins or the other surrounding veins could have problems. So, but yeah, once a vein's collapsed, that should be done. Those aren't coming back, but new ones could form. What are the risks of not, you know, okay, I can manage this. I can put some compression stockings on. I can kind of get through mm -hmm. the day. Are there big risks, though, of blood clots or, or, or huge problems that people should be aware of from not getting them treated? They're rare, but there are a risk of blood clots forming. Um, if a blood clot is in the superficial veins, they're not nearly as dangerous of traveling to the um, heart, brain, or lungs like the deep uh, blood clots, what we call a DVT, a deep vein thrombosis. Um, but you can get blood clots with them. They can ulcerate. And, you know, if you hit one of those veins and it's close enough to the surface, you know, they can definitely cause some significant bleeding. So those are the three big um, complications that can go along with this, with these varicose veins. All right. Upcoming on call with the Prairie Doc, anything that you want to say about your guests or some of the conversations you'll be having about arteries, veins, and capillaries? Oh, my. Um, I, I, <laughs> it's going to be a very interesting talk because the veins, arteries, you know, this peripheral vascular disease, there's so much that can be involved with affecting wound healing, with affecting overall health. You know, we talk a lot about the heart, but everything that goes in and out of the heart with those vessels is important. And that can kind of be the canary in the coal mine. If there's problems with your vessels in your legs or in your neck, you know, that could be a sign that maybe the vessels in your heart or around your heart could be affected as well. So hmm. it's important to pay attention to your vascular health because it could tell you what's going on with these other very important vessels, especially like the carotid vessel in the neck and the coronary arteries around the heart. Yeah. All right. Tune in Thursday, October 12th, 7 p.m. Central, 6 Mountain on SDPB TV. You can also always watch on the Prairie Doc Facebook page. Dr. Jill Cruz, thank you so much. It's a pleasure as always to talk to you. Yep. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, Rick Kaler gives great advice, like really great advice. He is a Rapid City Wealth Advisor. He's president of the Kaler Financial Group. He's the author of several books on financial therapy and one of the leaders internationally in the development of financial therapy. So when he gives you a pearl of financial wisdom, it's not a bad idea to take it. But yet... In his years as a financial advisor, he often comes up against resistance to his recommendations from clients, and he's with me now on the phone for a closer look at what's going on behind that resistance. Rick, welcome back to the program. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Lori. I'm excited to hear the advice from this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Surely everyone is excited, and you are just solving problems for people left and right. But... Um, I was in a, a, a group last week and we were, they were talking about financial advisors. And I said, well, I talked to a financial therapist and the whole group said, 
Oh, like that was the first time that they made the connection that there is something, uh, you know, more to be had in this in this field. So when you study why people don't take your advice, you're in that realm of uh, motivational interviewing and, and psychotherapy and positive psychology. And and you put a lot of that into your work as well. So tell me a little bit about resistance and what it is a sign of. How do you see it? show up with clients? Yeah, you know, so often a financial professional or any professional that's in the advice business assumes that the person sitting in front of them that is about to write them a check for their advice wants to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) And in some cases it's true. When a person, there's six stages of change and the fourth stage is action meaning there's three stages before they're going to take action that they could be in. So sometimes they're ready to go. Give me advice. Great. Thank you. But so often uh, if somebody comes to a a financial planner for a certain problem and the planner looks and sees, wow, that's the tip of the iceberg, Mm -hmm. there is a much bigger problem. It doesn't mean they're ready to take action on that. And so, so often, uh, we've thrown around the term that uh, clients are only ready to take action on 20% of the advice. Mm -hmm. So when when there's resistance, um, oftentimes the the planner will take that as, I need to talk louder, (laughs) I I didn't explain (laughs) this well enough, and can even get to the place where the, the, the planner will say, well, this is a difficult client because they, they don't listen, they don't do to what, the, the advice I'm giving. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so common for the head to nod in a, in a uh, session. Mm-hmm. Yep, 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 I'll do that. And you get together three, six months later and nothing's been done. And I think, uh, the, so a planner needs to be adept at recognizing resistance which means when you hit resistance, you're moving too fast. And that means in anything, you know, that means (laughs) as a parent, (laughs) when you hit resistance, we're moving too fast, we've got to slow down. Because typically the person is not feeling heard. Or you have just suggested something that's bringing something up from the past uh, for exa- example, as simple as saying maybe we should divert a little bit more of your portfolio into stocks, mm-hmm. uh, immediate resistance. Oh, I've done that, and I lost all my money. Yeah. Uh, and maybe they won't even say that. Nope, nope, I'm not going to do that at all. So it, it's important, of course, for a planner to re- realize that, but I think it's more important for for y- for you as a consumer to be aware and get curious about when resistance comes up within. Mm. Because there is no shame in feeling resistance. It means something. it's moving too fast and I've got to slow it down and get curious as to what's going on. So help me understand what you would say in that, in that moment or after you've gone home and had time to process it and you're like, you know what, I think I'm not feeling heard by my financial advisor, I need to go back in or at the next appointment or in that moment, if you're able to do that, stop and say, hey, let's back up for a minute. And and then you don't even know why you're resisting, though. So 
like you might get them to slow down, but and and then what? <laughs> <laughs> then what do I do? Yeah. Well, and that's exactly right. You may you, you when you hit the resistance, you probably don't have an idea of why you're resisting. And if you have a good relationship with that professional, you can just you can just say, "Stop! I am uh, recognizing resistance." When you said this, I immediately felt resistance come up within me. Mm. Now, an advisor that has some listening skills is going to be able to process that and get curious with you, just like you'd get curious with a friend, um, to say, yeah, I'm not sure. And as a person talks and fleshes that out, uh, huge chance it's going to become um, apparent. But it will take being in an environment where you feel safe because we don't do inner exploration uh, in places where we don't feel safe. Yeah, it's a very vulnerable thing thing to do is to say I'm feeling – because you don't know, especially if you don't know what's going to – What's coming up? <laughs> what are some of those exactly. questions? So then if, if, a, if a, a client says to you, yeah, I don't want to make that, I want to do that thing that you're asking me to do um, because. I would say, well, tell me more about that. Yeah. Um, and typically there'll be a response <laughs> that will kind of get the ball rolling into, well, um, I have a friend that did that and it didn't work out so well yeah oh okay what do you know more about the friend's circumstance yeah Uh, tell me more about that and the key is uh, the for the professional the key is just to be curious and not start giving us advice or telling them well if you don't do that here's what's going to happen to you or start getting confrontive because that shuts the person down even more it's just time to stop and explore and to be curious that's got to be hard because it can be very urgent i'm thinking about in a doctor's office or like you said with a, a parent um, there could be really life or death situations. Also, with your finances, you could be making some really devastating financial decisions. That's got to be hard to not throw in a scare tactic if that's the culture that you came from. But it yeah, doesn't work. It's, it's definitely how I used to do things. It's <laughs> <laughs> to scare and guilt and shame the yeah. person into action, and it can work. I mean, if it's if it's October. 14th and your returns due October 15th, yeah. you probably don't have a long time to explore why you don't want to file your return. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, probably nobody goes to jail if you don't. It may cost some money. Yeah. But oftentimes in finances, um, we don't necessarily have an emergency. There's sometimes when you do. But oftentimes the urgency can be more of the urgency of the professional than the actual urgency of the client. Now, it's it's true. I said this. um, I just came from the financial therapy uh, conference, and I was talking about the fact that in financial therapy, time is money. So if you if you think about it, while while you're trying to get whole or become healed around your money, and it, let's assume it's overspending, the longer time it takes, the more it costs. So there is some 
legitimacy and saying, yeah, we'd like to fix this problem sooner than later. But sometimes we've got to slow down to speed up. Yeah. There can be some hard things that uh, you uncover if you're thinking of resistance. And then I know in my life I've had a few things that I faced and I was like, that wasn't a big deal. What, what was, (laughs) what was I even resisting? So it can be that you've already done the work that, and give yourself a little credit for the work that you've done. Have you seen people just kind of move past something like, well, oh yeah, I did lose money at that time. Oh yeah, it felt bad. Oh yeah, I've already processed that. We can make a different decision now. Have you seen doors open more quickly than, you know, based on sort of long-term relationships? Yeah, if you don't stop down and slow down and talk about it, uh, you don't give yourself the chance to do exactly what what you said to to say, oh, and and sometimes it's just a little bit more of information. Oh, well, your friend had this experience. What I'm understanding, there are some real differences, A, B, and C. And the Mm. person can go, oh, okay, I didn't see that. But if you don't slow down and stop, the resistance is just there, and it's going to be a resistance until somehow that that's resolved. And this reminds me of a conversation you and I recently had about um, that financial advisor might end up being really a, a friend to you in the sense that if you feel safe to talk with them about things, and then when you're transitioning and your kids come along and they say, well, let's cut, you know, let's cut out the payment to the financial advisor, you know, the parent might be like, well, not, not so fast. So this gets to the idea that, you know, if this is going well, this could be a really good relationship filled with meaningful conversation. It's not just transactional. Absolutely. And if you think about it, a lot of people uh, confide more in their financial professional than they do their therapist. (laughs) <laughs> so it, it's a place yeah. uh, where safety and non-judgment is so really important. And yes, I I have um, um, been through almost the life cycle with with many clients yeah. because once you get a relationship that's like that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how valuable is that? I was just thinking of, well, I'm thinking of so many things right now, but also I think sometimes we should pause and just talk about how things can go really well. You know, like sometimes this goes, I was at a funeral this weekend and there was just one of those moments where we're like, this person made good decisions um, that benefited everyone even on their final day. And isn't that just nice? Isn't that just a nice moment to realize that that's part of a life story. It can go really well sometimes with money. It can. And I'm working on a presentation right now in in three weeks, and I'm starting off with what is financial well-being and how can things go right? Mm. And what does uh, financial wholeness really look like in a person? What does financial wholeness look like in a person? Oh, Let's talk about that next time. We can do that next time, yeah. That feels good. (laughs) All right. Um, You can find all our conversations with Rick Kaler on our website, sdpb.org slash news. Sometimes the easiest way is just to go and Google Rick Kaler and Lori Walsh and find them all that way. So, Rick, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Lori. 
Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. On this day in 1942, Captain Joe Foss and his unit landed at Henderson Field at Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands. Foss's unit was known as Joe's Flying Circus. They were instrumental in protecting Guadalcanal over the next several months during World War II. Joe Foss's interest in aviation was sparked by a 1932 air show. A squadron of Marine flyers staged the show in Sioux Falls. Foss had his first airplane ride three years later, and he followed that with flying lessons in 1937. During his studies at the University of South Dakota, Foss took the Civil Aeronautics Authority flying course, and he had accumulated 100 hours of flying time by graduation. He also served in the South Dakota National Guard while in college, and right after graduation, he enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserve. Foss left the reserves and moved to active duty as a Marine pilot late in the 1940s, and over the next two years, he advanced to the rank of captain, and he trained other pilots at bases in Florida and California. Assigned to the South Pacific in October 1942, Foss and his squadron flew almost every day. In his first few weeks, he shot down 23 enemy planes, and during his service as a Marine pilot, Joe Foss was distinguished as an ace. He became one of 82 Marines, earning the Medal of Honor during World War II. Post-war, Foss served as president of the National Rifle Association. He became South Dakota's youngest ever governor at the age of 39. But it was this week in 1942 when a young marine aviator named Joe Foss arrived for duty at Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant, a writer and professor of history at Dakota Wesleyan University. More in the moment is up next on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. For this week's Teacher Talk, educators Gina Benz and Jackie Wilbur share a conversation about growth mindset and rigor in the classroom. You can find the companion blog online at sdpb.org slash teacher talk. Gina Benz is an English teacher at Roosevelt High School in Sioux Falls, and Jackie Wilbur is director of the Center of Student and Professional Services at the University of South Dakota School of Education. Here's our conversation. We're going to start with some of your deepest fears, Gina Benz. (laughs) 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 Sit down, talk about what you're afraid of. No, this is, I love, I love this blog post because there are so many different ways we can unpack this. And we're starting, it's called, Am I Doing This Right? And we are starting with this whole idea of self-reflection, um, you know, taking a check to say, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but also imposter syndrome and self-doubt and what you find on Twitter that, uh, you know, criticizes teachers, that causes teachers to look in the mirror and go, oh, am I doing this right? Tell me a little bit about how you came to this topic. It was not the topic I planned to talk about today, but then I was on Twitter, X, whatever we want to say, and uh, I saw a post about a teacher, uh, she, how did that go? She was, her. she had a student sleeping in the class and somebody said to her, well, maybe your class isn't rigorous enough. 
And then someone else responded with, you know, I had a student sleeping in class and somebody told me maybe your class isn't engaging enough. <laughs> and it struck a nerve because the thing that always gets me is when a student will say to me, oh, I told my friend that he should take your class because it's so fun and easy. And I think, oh, <sighs> do I want that reputation? <laughs> and as I dig deeper, I... I, I get the students to say something more to the effect of you make learning feel fun and easy, but I wish they would just say that right away. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's okay to go home at the end of the day for your teacher and say, oh, they think I'm the tough one. Darn it. Of course I am tough. Yeah. And people... it's harder that if, if the students are giving you feedback, which normally would be good, positive feedback, I love coming to your class. I'm telling other people to sign up for your class. That should be a good feeling. But the word easy is in there. Where, how, how deeply rooted is that for you, that you can't be the easy grader or the easy teacher? I think I'm revealing that I once struggled with perfectionism. <laughs> and I... Uh, Honey, we already knew. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm recovering, though. <laughs> and so... And, and I probably am recovering because I, I have decided to go non-traditional routes. And, yeah. and what you said is exactly right. Like, I could fall back into what feels easier for me, and that's be the tough teacher, give the multiple choice tests, give the constant quizzes, give the constant homework... But research tells us that that is not the best way for kids to learn. And a lot of times those activities aren't even going very deep when it comes to critical thinking. They're right. keeping people at just remembering or understanding something. Jackie, talk about the research and what do you want to weigh in first on this whole concept of being easy or rigorous and I don't think those are t you know those aren't necessarily the only words we should be using but sometimes they are <laughs> the words yeah. people fall back on what do you want to add right up front yeah um you know I did a lot of research when I was in my doctoral program about compassion versus criticism in the the realm of education and I think criticism has this way of making us feel like we're doing something and that if we weren't being critical that we would just be lazy and do nothing, right? And so there is this notion, I think very pervasively in our society that unless we're like being really hard on ourselves and really hard on the, the people that we're trying to get good work out of, that that's the only way that they're gonna be able to really produce is under these like harsh, hard critical conditions. But what actually ends up happening is a stress response accumulates from those kinds of conditions and people become nervous and anxious and stressed and when you're in a state of stress what happens is that your your brain goes into fight or flight mode and that is not the the mentality that you need in order to be able to learn complex subjects like when you're faced with a bear you're not like oh i would love to do calculus high level calculus right now that's what that, that's not where your mind is at you're trying to survive and so if you create this kind of survival feeling in a classroom that's the mindset that the students have it's very difficult to learn complex things but it is counterintuitive it's not it's not part of our our natural way of doing things at least in our current society like we like to be hard on ourselves um, as a way of showing that we're working hard. So you measure, help me understand this, you're measuring the learning. You're not measuring whether something is rigorous. Like, right, Dina? Yeah. Yeah. You mean, well, at the end of the day, you're measuring how much the student has learned or grown 
it's not you're not measuring the sweat that dripped off there, right? Well, let me let me add to that. So we have something called Bloom's taxonomy. And what this means is that there's six different levels or types of learning, you could say. And when I think of the sweat dripping off of you while you're doing homework or a test or a quiz, a lot of times that is at the, uh, I guess I'll say lower end of Bloom's taxonomy. I don't want to discredit the importance of what's at the bottom of this pyramid. But uh, what with regard to rigor, rigor can also look like writing an essay, creating a website, having a discussion. And so I think rigor more so is what is the task that's being done. And what is probably most rigorous actually would be actually creating something or evaluating something or analyzing something. So at the end of a class period, let's take an example, and I haven't been in your class, which I should stop by. Please. By the way. Cool. And okay. you know I'll interview you and you'll <laughs> okay. teach us so much. And let's say you have a discussion about a chapter in a book and it just takes off. And you, and you look up and like every kid is in, in the way that is sort of maximum effort for that kid. They are all engaged. Everything is done. They leave the class. They're all having fun. Big smiles on their faces. You feel good. You feel good. And then still in your mind is like, was that hard? Like, what I want to get at here is this idea that we equate suffering with success. Yes. Or like we can't have success without suffering. And then I also want to ask this idea, like, how do we learn how to work past something really hard if we've never done everything hard and all the things we've done? So those are two different yeah. sort of rabbit trails to go down. So first, um, Jackie, is success always accompanied by suffering? Mm. <laughs> like the idea is that we're going to feel better because we worked for it. Yeah. It's a feel better if you worked hard. Mm. Oh, I think, I think that's got to be an individual question, or at least it feels personal to me, right? Yeah. Um, there have been times where I've like really suffered and worked super hard and it just felt yucky in the end. Like, oh, all of that suffering and then this was the only result. Like it just felt bad doing it. And so I didn't even enjoy the the end product. Yeah. And then there have been other things where I felt like I worked really hard, but I was like cheering for myself the whole time. And those successes felt really good. And so, but I think, I think it depends on a lot on your upbringing and your culture. And, you know, it does feel really personal. But I, I hear what you're saying. Like, I think you're very much tapping into a mentality that exists, which is like, if it's not blood, sweat, and tears, you didn't really do it. You didn't really earn it, you know? I think that, I think that mentality very much exists in the education system. Right. So let's bring this growth mindset, which you guys talked about in a previous conversation, to it. If you are the kid who this subject becomes easy for you will reach a point where it doesn't come easy. Yes. Right? Yes. There'll be yep. something. I don't know when that's going to happen for you, but at some point it's going to happen for you. Yep. And you're going to hit that wall and you go, oh, now I have to do something and it's not coming as easy. And we want to make sure that student still figures out how to push to the next level, but it doesn't have to mean agony. Yeah. So Carol Dweck is kind of the, the main person who wrote about growth mindset. And one of her studies was in math, which I think is the one of the subjects that people kind of bump up what, exactly what you're talking about. And so one of her experiments was exactly this. There are students doing math problems that they all can do, and they're just doing their math problems, and then they bump up against the ones that they can't do. And students who have 
um, what's considered growth mindset said things like, oh, I really love a challenge, or I bet if I work hard enough at this or long enough at this, I'm going to figure this out. Or maybe when I'm a fifth grader, I think the students were in fourth grade in this study, maybe when I'm a fifth grader, I'll know how to do this. So they said all of these kind of like encouraging things to themselves, whereas students who had a fixed mindset said things like, oh, I've never been good at math or they started like pulling the ponytail of the kid in front of them or throwing their pencil or kind of pouting or shutting down. And then she gave those same students math problems that they previously could do. And the students who had a fixed mindset could no longer do the math problems that they previously could do, whereas the growth mindset students still could. So I think the, the thing that you're talking about there is really like how do we respond in the face of the challenge? And those who have that fixed mindset shut down and say, I'm not a math person. I, I guess I can't do this. I, I was a math person, but it's over now. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm. So for us, I really should call my daughter and ask her if I can share all these stories. <laughs> <laughs> sixth grade, sixth grade math. Everything was going fine. She's you know, was very good at math and she just hit that, you know, wall where all of a sudden it became hard. And I was the parent who was like, well, we're going to keep working and we're not going to give up and we're going to unpack it. And we're going to blah, 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 you know, all these things that I said, which largely were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so then we made it a conference with a teacher who was genius, still love him to this day. And he said, if you're working on the problem for more than 15 minutes, stop mm. and just come to school tomorrow and I'll go over it with you. And I remember just looking at him with like a long, silent pause. <laughs> like, what do you, what did you just say? And if you can't do it, stop. And I will teach you how to do it better. And I could not get through that, through that. I couldn't get that through my mind, Gina, that we wouldn't just, because that's how I was raised, right? That's the perfectionist. Me too. So I was bringing all this stuff to my child. And then I had to teach her again. It's been 15 minutes. We're not going to get this tonight. Mm -hmm. Let's take a walk tomorrow. Mr. Barth will help you figure it out. And he did. And then nonstop math. You know, part just of right that. up that hill. Just great math. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah. I love that. Um, you know, part of that is teaching our students how to advocate for themselves and go in and ask the questions. And then I had the exact same experience. I remember yeah. my daughter was up way too late doing homework in middle school. And I just said, stop. Well, I'm not done yet. I said, no, you're going to bed. Just stop. And if there's any problems, then, you know, we can we can address that. But you're just going to stop right now. And I was certainly not raised that way. You right. you start a job, you get that job done. But I can say from the teacher end, the last thing I want to do is to cause that kind of stress in the home. The mm. home is a place for, you know, bonding and connecting and feeling safe. And so I would be very glad if a student just stopped and then came and talked to me the next day. That's, I, it's still, and Jackie, that just reveals how deeply it can be ingrained in our minds Yeah, that um, these things are somehow good for us or somehow necessary, but everything you're saying about the research saying, this is chronic stress then, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it's never going to go away. Maybe it goes yeah. away a little bit in the summer, but you know, when you're an adult, th maybe that hasn't gone away for you now. Sure. I mean, this isn't part of the American zeitgeist because of no reason, right? Like, I'm sure people listening have experiences of being in trouble for not getting their math homework done on yeah. time, right? Like, 
that happened too. So I think this is part of the evolution and the conversation more so now than it ever has been. Um, and I think that that's a really important shift that we we're still working through, you know, because we're also trying to take teach things like responsibility and follow through and, sure. you know, being accountable for your actions. But we're also dealing with children, you know, and so there's there's a balance and sleep is really important to their development, more important than getting problem number 36 done, you know? Yeah, we're all human beings. Mm -hmm. But uh, Gina, <laughs> I know you and I are going to vibe on this one. Like how many times have you skipped sleep, skipped yeah. lunch? skipped exercise, skipped time to yourself to be a good professional too. I mean, we have to unlearn this ourselves to yes. today. Yes. And I have been in that process of unlearning. I'm, I haven't yeah. reached the goal line. Maybe I never will reach the goal line, but honestly, my relationship with Jackie helped me start that process because Jackie has done so much research on how we do perform better when we're not yeah. under extreme stress. And, you know, ultimately, when we're not under extreme stress, we're more willing to take risks with our learning rather than play it safe. And I tell you what, I want students who will take some risks with their learning, not yeah. the ones who play it safe for the easy A. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to, let's circle it back to the whole beginning, which is when people say things on Twitter, and I, you know, they say things about me, and people tell me to ignore it, and I don't. <laughs> That's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's your reputation, right? Right. right? Mm -hmm. And I replay it in my mind. And am I doing this right again and again? We all do that to a certain extent. Um, but to the point that we're making with these teacher talk conversations, when you shoot things like that out, like I get it. You're a parent. It can be very unsettling to try to figure out how to help your kid navigate the classroom and an easy target is a nameless, faceless teacher. Mm. And you might want to say, well, if they taught better, mm. or if they weren't so this, then this would happen for my kid. Think twice before you post the mean thing. <laughs> we want to be a team with parents. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, maybe there's, there's some outliers who don't work well, who don't play well with others. But all, I, I think all of my colleagues want to t be a team with parents not adversarial in any way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any final thoughts, Jackie, that um, you, you want to wrap up with when, when you're helping the next generation of teachers step into their role in the classroom, they're going to have doubts. Yeah. Um, how do you handle doubt in a way that allows for reflection, but that also doesn't shut you down? Yeah. I think the title of Gina's blog, like, am I doing this right, is such an inherent part of the profession. You know, when I was really doing it, I put my head on the pillow most days and went through the whole day and kind of just wondered if I had been doing it right. Yeah. But I think that that means that you are. Mm -hmm. The fact that you care enough to go through your day like that and think about the impact that you have, to know that you're being trusted with people's kids and to really take that seriously means that you're in the right role and that you also deserve to fall asleep. <laughs> and to give yeah. yourself the grace that you tend to give your students and yeah. your friends and your family. Give yourself yeah. that grace, too. Mm -hmm. You deserve sleep. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a human being, <laughs> you deserve some sleep. Yep. Yeah. Now go take it. Yeah. <sighs> that might be a good way to end. <laughs> you can find Teacher Talk Conversations and companion blogs on our website, sdpb.org slash 
Teacher Talk. If you are an educator in South Dakota or a parent in the school district and you have a question we want me to pose to those teachers, send us an email in the moment at sdpb.org. All right, here's what's coming up. Our next Dakota political junkies uh, are going to explore war in the Middle East in the context of U.S. presidential politics tomorrow. They'll talk about congressional chaos and a looming government shutdown. We've got the University of South Dakota professor Tim Shorn with us. He will help us understand the crisis in the Middle East and the realities of the current conflict. Also on tomorrow's show, Rabbi Mendel Alperowitz is with us ahead of an upcoming presentation from a survivor of the Holocaust. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. If you miss an In the Moment broadcast, you can always find us on podcast platforms. Subscribe and share. Again, if you have an idea for the show or you want to connect with our team, send us that email in the moment at sdpb.org. Special thanks today to SDPB's Fritz Miller and Chris Lawfrey for their help with today's broadcast and from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh, and we thank you for listening.